Well, hello and welcome to the Learning from Legends show with me, Peter Switzer, and it's an unusual show this week because I'm doing it from isolation. I made the big mistake of going to Melbourne late last week, and so I was damned, damned by Dan Andrews, and so I'm in lockup mode. Even though I've, I've made the, the the dash for the state line and got back into New South Wales, I still actually have to do um, what everyone in Victoria is doing is wait until midnight on Wednesday to see if we can get released. But the show must go on. And on this week's show, I catch up with a, a great Melbourneian, namely Adam Ferrier, uh, the founder of Thinkabell. Adam is one of the star performers on the ABC's Gruen show, uh, a long history in advertising. Uh, and what he doesn't know about advertising isn't worth knowing. He talks about actually, you know, what messages really work and how do you make yourself a better communicator with your message that you'll find that a very interesting interview and then i'm going to try something totally outlandish i'm going to actually interview myself um i've always wondered whether i could do that so this is very experimental we had a we had a dropout and i thought well rather than chasing and pressuring other people let's do something that people have asked me before give give me uh, give them my story and i'm going to do it interviewing myself Let's just see if it works. So without any further ado, let's go to Adam Ferrier of Thinkabell. For people who don't know what Thinkabell is, they may say, hey, that's that, that rough-headed-looking guy who used to be on the, uh, the Gruen show and stuff like that. But, well, not rough-headed, just the, the, um, the, <laughs> the rock singer-looking kind of guy. Uh, what is Thinkabell, Adam? Thinkabell is uh, mainly a creative agency that practices measured magic. Uh, measured magic is a uh, nice way of saying marketing sciences meets hardcore creativity. Yeah. So in the world of advertising, media, PR, there's now a, a lot of information around how consumers make decisions, how they actually do things, it's, um, how you can predict consumer behaviour, and it's in a whole world of information in behavioural science and marketing sciences. And we combine that knowledge with really good creative ideas, good creative thinking, and come up with you know branded communication solutions for our clients. Yeah. Is it fair to say that the advertising and marketing industry has always tried to understand the mind of the consumer, but the, 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 the level of science and research and the body of knowledge has really improved you know, in the last 10 years? No, I don't think it is. To be honest with you, it's not fair to say that. Huh? In about in the mid-50s, a guy called Vance Puckard wrote a book called The Hidden Persuaders about the psychology of advertising. And that scared the whole industry away from being scientific or being too effective at, at what it did, thinking that we could have mind control or persuade people against their will to buy stuff. Right. And so that kind of... False, false belief, if you like, made the whole industry very unscientific for a really long time. And so people were just making shit up and coming up with false, false ways and false ways of, of false models of how people do things and so on. And the creative director used to always say, just trust me, it'll work, just trust me. Yeah. And they had no language for how we did things. It's only in the last 10 years that uh, advertising and media has embraced marketing sciences and it's come right back into the centre of the industry. 
Okay, so so before that, it was just a lot of gut feeling, and because someone was very, very big in the industry, you've just basically trusted him. That that's exactly right. And people used to call themselves an intuitive marketer, and uh, studying marketing was really undervalued. And you know, uh, vainglorious, uh, charismatic people could come along, and occasionally people like Steve Jobs and. Um, Richard Branson just were, you know, just got it all right. They did know, but for everyone else, you know, having a bit of knowledge about how it all works is a pretty good thing. Okay, so so therefore, Thinkabel's competitive advantage is, yeah, is is combining the marketing sciences with the creativity and, and having that front and centre. Yeah, that that that's and then having a and then having there's, we've got a couple of other bits of competitive advantage as well of that. Uh, we have thinkers and tinkers. So we have tinkers who are creatives, thinkers who are strategists. We put those two people together and they service our clients' needs. Most traditional agency models have layers and layers of account service, which is basically just a way for many agencies to jack up their head hours so they've got more people their clients have to pay, which is uh, pretty silly. Okay, so I want to get back to that later. I've got a few key questions I want to hit you with, like, for example, you know, 2020, the challenges, what did you learn from that experience? Well, at a personal level, I learned the value in slowing down. My life just became so hyper-efficient on Zoom after Zoom after Zoom for 10 hours a day that it did my head in. Um, and, you know, and I, I, I got help and slowed down and spoke to someone about it, looked at priorities and values and so on, and just had a great moment in the back end of the year exploring who I am and all that kind of stuff. And that was that was really beneficial. Uh, for my clients, I understood uh, just the value of just trying to understand the context of their problem first. Like we have people like the cruise, you know, people in the cruise industry, like Royal Caribbean Cruises being absolutely decimated. You know, we had other clients like Coles who had to kind of manage, uh, manage demand basically. Yeah. Um, and so just, just taking a step back, understanding the context of where they're in and and then, and then looking at how to solve a particular problem. So given the experience in 2020, in, in looking at this year ahead, are there, are there any things that you've learned in 2020 that you think are going to help you in 2021? Uh, again, at a personal level, compartmentalising. When I'm working, I'm working. When I'm not, I'm not. I just want to really try to hold on to that. Um, for the work... Um, yeah, there's a whole lot of macro trends that I think have been influenced by 2020 that are bleeding into 2021. So local being Australian, value of physical touch, community, uh, being a good corporate citizen, all of those things seem to be com conversations that are continuing to have as we roll into 2021 and beyond, I think. Mm. Have you have you actually? I know, for example, I, I interviewed the the MD of Webjet, John Gusick, you know, right in the middle of the coronavirus restrictions and whatever. And one thing he said to me was, I said, "Well, how's the business going to go uh, when borders open up?" And he said, "Well, when Australian borders open up, we, we'll we'll actually turn profitable because I, I've reviewed all my costs. I was forced to review all my costs to keep the business alive." He said, "And I, there was just stuff that I didn't see that was there." Do you think a lot of people have actually gone through the same kind of experience and that will carry over to 2021? 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. Look, and we're not in the efficiency game, so I would never, ever have those kind of conversations. Efficiency is not what you go to a creative agency to do. But it's but, but necessity is the mother of invention. And so people getting back to basics, looking at their core competencies, looking at what we do well, and they're seeing other ways of how we can apply that and build business models in that is really interesting. And so we've had lots of different conversations about how to transition those competencies into other things. So one three cabs developed one three things and became a courier company and developed a great relationship with Woolworths and do all of their couriering and can do stuff really quick from now. Um, but also we also had uh, conversations about understanding your customer. And again, in the cruise industry, you think, oh my God, they've been decimated and they're, they're not allowed to cruise. But all of the people who do cruise have now doubled down and they're all pre-booked and their pre-bookings are through the roof. Oh. Like the, the industry, people who like it can't wait to get back out there and cruise again. And so just understanding who your loyal customer base is and maintaining a dialogue with them through these times, I think is really important as well. Okay, I've got a question here. Um, I, I, I feel as though you must have written it because it's, it's really out there, but I think it's, it's really relevant. It's, got, it's often said that customers are increasingly rewarding companies that authentically and holistically meet their needs. What do business owners need to, to respond to this trend? That was you, wasn't it? No, that wasn't me. <laughs> and um, and I, I don't even, I, I'm a little bit wary of, of the question. I think no, no customer out there needs, needs your brand. Nobody needs it. They need your category from time to time. And when they need your category, hopefully your brand is top of mind when that category need occurs. You don't have to meet the category need of buying a cool drink authentically and holistically. You just need to offer them a decent cool drink. You don't need to, you know, so I think that's taking things a little bit too far. Um, I do think, I do think corporate, at corporate levels, corporations are struggling with building more of a socio-capitalistic business model, being better corporate citizens and so forth. I think for the consumer, at the end of the day, they have a category need. If your brand is top of mind when they enter that category, then they're more likely to buy you rather than someone else. Yeah, but is the word authentic a, a, a relevant word for a business going forward? In the same way that consumer is an, is an authentic word, they just, I just reckon they're pretty fat words. I don't know what you want me to do with that. What's inauthentic? Uh, well, I would have thought a lot of the big financial institutions, the big brand names, have lost a lot of friends because they haven't been authentic. Uh, they haven't been, yeah, maybe transparency might be a better word. Okay. Maybe, maybe everyone's looking for, in that, in that particular instance, instance, I get transparency and I get customers wanting to have a transparent relationship with their bank and knowing where the fees go and who's getting what and who's being paid for who. But I don't quite know what an authentic bank to me is one that makes a shitload of money and is really good at making money. That's an authentic bank. Okay. Transparency in how they do that, and that's yeah. good. Why am I surprised that you're debating semantics? I I'm really surprised. Let's go to the next interesting question, which you probably didn't write, and I'll be keen to hear your answer. Are businesses better positioned these times of unprecedented change when they can clearly communicate a clear purpose to show why they exist and who they are built to serve? Yes. 
You can call it a purpose or you can call it a proposition, mm. but having absolute clarity in the consumer's mind as to why you're there and what your promise is. Humans are really interesting. You show you show humans a brand they haven't come across before and their brain lights up like a Christmas tree under MRI scans. Mm. Show them a brain, show them a brand they're really familiar with and their brain hardly lights up at all. And we, we're cognitive misers. We like to think as little as possible about any decision we make. So if you don't have to think about a particular brand or its proposition or its purpose, then you're more likely to buy that brand because there's less work to do to process it. Mm. So, so what you're suggesting then is that people should look at their marketing to see if it's actually delivering that kind of message. That's right, Peter. And, and look, at, look at it right through every single touch point that they do. So if you're a if you're a grocer, if you're a green grocer, pre people probably want fresh and make sure that every single thing that you're doing communicates freshness, it, you know, whether it be your, the uniform you're wearing, the badge that, you know, you have to spray the fruit and veg, you have to have fresh awnings and stuff. Just constantly reinforce that proposition through every single touch point that you have. Okay. This, uh, I feel as though this is a very dangerous question, but I, I enjoy danger uh, with you. What are your thoughts about the trend of agile marketing? Oh, I, I think agile, I, I know, I hear what you I hear, uh, I think it's good, but I think it kind of relates back to your previous question. The stronger your proposition, the better you know your brand, your brand's proposition, then the less umming and ahhing you need to do about what's on brand or off brand, or should you do this or should you do that? Everything just feels right. So one of my clients is Vegemite, and we came up with the proposition or the tagline, "Tastes like Australia." Tastes like Australia, and that means it's an iconic Australian taste made up of weird, wonderful things. But having a proposition "Tastes like Australia" now that it's back in Australian hands under Bega's ownership means that we can do, we don't have to pontificate too hard. Just does does that feel like an iconic Australian thing to do? Yes or no? Bang, we can start to do it, and so we can start to do lots and lots of kind of. Uh, agile things or things that um, get attention and get word of mouth because we're all really, really clear about what that brand stands for. Um, and when you're dealing with brands of that size, what's really good about that is it allows you to get lots of earned media without having to pay for media so you can maintain top of mind salience in the mm -hmm. consumer's mind. Now, this is a, a question I haven't got here, but um, given the fact that you've probably spent a lot more time at home than you would have if it wasn't for the coronavirus, did you ever see a program called Mr. Selfridge? Uh, no, but I, I was going to watch it. It was on Netflix, I think. And uh, I Stan. It's on Stan. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and I just fell into it. It is very good. You'll, you'll, yeah, right. you'll really enjoy it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, I I thought I, the only reason I watched it was one of the reviews actually said... Um, uh, I didn't want to watch it, thought it'd be corny, but I'm in business for myself and I've, I learned so much about business from this Mr. Selfridge. So I thought, got to watch this. And it was, it was very good. My next one to you is, should businesses view themselves as human entities that mirror and support the value of those they are built to serve? No, that seems a bit wacky and weird to me. Businesses are corporations designed to make money and brands are there to help those businesses achieve those objectives and yeah. that's what you need to do. But brands, brands, there is a saying in consumer psychology that actual self plus brand equals ideal self. And so 
the more gap there is between the actual self and the ideal self, then the more that brand can help meet that consumer's goals, if you like, or meet its motivations. And so you'll be more beautiful if you use this hair care or you'll, you know, be more fitter if you use this slimming drink or whatever it is. And so, um, so brands used to try to create more and more distance between the actual self and the ideal self and say, and give false hope and false promises. And, and I think people are starting to call bullshit a little bit. I think people are starting to call bullshit a little bit more. And I think the gap between actual self and ideal self is closing. And so brands are having as less aspirational imagery in ads now and more reflective imagery of just reflecting who I, who I, how I see myself as, yeah. not who I necessarily want to be. Yeah. And I think if I was uh, being a bit pontificating about that, it might be because we're started to actualize. We've got enough money in society now where we're not aspiring to be more and more and more all the time. We're just settling down a little bit, being more comfortable with who we are. And so therefore, we just need to reflect back who the consumer is, not who they want to be. Okay. So listening to you, uh, let, let me just use me as an example. So when I, when I want to market to potential financial planning customers, I really don't want to be like them because they are often bad with money and I'm supposed to be good with money. Yeah. Uh, so I, I figure I need to show my, my skill set is going to help them. But what I do try to do is, is communicate at a level that makes them think, hey, I can understand this guy and, and therefore he's trying to make it easy for me to understand. Yeah, I, I reckon that's a real, I reckon, like, okay, that's interesting. So the codes of money used to be uh, BMW, uh, suit, button-up tie, slick, confident handshake, all of that kind of stuff. And that's, if you betrayed that, it meant that you knew about money. The people who really know about money now wear a hoodie to work, uh, jeans, T-shirts. You know, you look at the Alassian guys, you look at um, Martin Zuckerberg and stuff, and they don't feel like... So, so, so if I had, so if you saw somebody who's trying to look really, really rich and successful in the pinnacle of money, I, I reckon they would. I reckon you'd run a mile. Cause I reckon you'd think, God, oh, this person's just um, is, okay. is pretending to be something they're not. So yes. Okay. So. Next, next one, mate. What do you think businesses need to do to establish and grow trust? Uh, be consistent. So to establish, so to grow trust, be consistent, and to grow, they need to keep on attracting new users into their brand, um, and so keep on talking to new people, keep on keep on pushing the boundaries, keep on finding more more light users of their category, but then build trust. It's being, it's I think it's a consistency game. I think you've got to keep on saying, keep on delivering on what you promise. Yep. So what role should customer participation play? in an engagement strategy, how does, uh, does differing across, how does it, di does it differ across the various marketing channels available today? Uh, it's interesting, so because the more, the more customers buy into something or, or, or contribute to something, the more they trust it. There's a beautiful thing in psychology called the effort paradox. The effort paradox means the more effort you put into anything, the more you value it. It's probably best expressed by parenthood 
you put a shitload of effort into into the, into those kids, yeah, and then you end up just loving them no matter no matter who they are because you'd be crazy not to, right? Um, and so the same kind of goes for brands. So you think a brand like IKEA. IKEA lives off the effort paradox. You, you know, you shop around. There's only one in the state. You, you drive out there. You go around this big maze. You bring it home. You build it yourself, and you value it. You value it a lot for putting in so much effort. So what I would be doing with my with my customer base is I would stop asking what I can do for them and ask what they can do for me and get them to contribute into my brand. And the more they contribute it, the more they will value it, the more they value it, the more they'll trust it. Okay, the importance of storytelling in your marketing. Uh, yes. Uh, we, we like stories, we like emotion. If by storytelling you mean appeal to people's emotions, yes. Mm. We like emotion, emotion bypasses rational cognition. As soon as you develop rational cognition, a lot of us develop reactants. So if I try to say, hey, I've got an IQ of 142, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, you might start to develop reactants to that and form a counter argument. But if I just make you smile or say a self-deprecating joke, uh, you might just like me a little bit more and then you kind of just think, yeah, yeah, Adam's cool. And so I think storytelling is important to convey emotion. Yeah. So, Adam, I, I know you, you made the point early in this interview that you, you've, you know, you've been committed to the science of, of understanding people, right, the way they think. So do, yeah. you th do you think anyone in business really should make a big commitment to understanding people for, for being an employer as well as being a marketer of their product and even a creator of products that they want to sell to people? A hundred percent. I think, we're, I think we're all in the behaviour change business. We're all trying to change the behaviour of other people. The better we are changing the behaviour of other people, the more successful and the happier we're going to be. Whether that's getting our kids through their veggies, getting our partners to come home on time, getting our boss to give us clear direction, getting our subordinates to do their work, or getting customers to buy our products. We're all in the behaviour change business. And it's amazing that behaviour change should be the number one best-selling area in the bookshop forever because that's that's what we're in the business of doing. Uh, one last one before I talk about your over 55 strategy is uh, how important is it for businesses to constantly survey their customers, whether they do it officially or unofficially? Uh, it's a good question. We, we use the NPS, the Net Promoter Score, with our clients. We survey ourselves every quarter. Um, I think, again, that by merely by researching your clients, your clients will like you more just by having their opinions asked. That's pretty well established. So for no other reason, you should be doing that. Um, and But getting feedback, understanding what they want is really good. There is a danger to it, though. You're normally going to get feedback from the people who like your brand and know your brand well. Whereas your business will grow from understanding light users of your brand or non-existent customers. Mm. So be very, very careful about listening to your current customers too much because then you'll just start marketing to the people who are already buying your product. Mm. Okay. Now, one thing is great for all businesses is to be innovative. And one interesting innovation you've introduced is not only going to be hopefully good for your business, but good for, for the people you're actually employing. Tell us about it. 
Yeah, thanks, Peter, for the opportunity. It's called Thrive at 55. It's an internship program which we've just started running at, at Thinkerbell. And we started doing it because the advertising industry is ageist. There's only 5% of the industry is aged over 55. And so we did an internship program. You have to be 55 years or, or older to, to get an internship. Uh, it's an eight-week fully paid internship, uh, 55K prorated um, uh, to the eight weeks. And... Um, and it's been, we had 260 applications. We've got three people in there. They started yesterday. It's been featured pretty much in quite a lot of news and made um, quite a lot of headlines around the place, which is great. We are trying to get the message out there to kind of um, encourage people to have a more diverse workforce. And um, we just think ageism hasn't been tackled yet. It's just about to be tackled. And as I get older, I want to get older in a, in a non-judgmental atmosphere mm. as doing it for self-preservation as much as for anything else. Yeah, you're actually reminding me of that film with uh, Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway, which is a great film and actually yeah. did show a real lot of good business messages. That's right, the intern, exactly. Yeah. And older people have creativity, but they've got it with uh, wisdom and experience. And they make great bedfellows for something as ambiguous creativity. You need, you need to have wisdom when you apply that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's fantastic for a very young man like you to care about older people. <laughs> you've, you've always been a thinker bell outside the square, mate. Thanks for joining us. Good on you, Peter. Take care, mate. And that was Adam Ferrier of Thinkerbell. Interesting, isn't it, that he's actually encouraging the hiring of older workers. He's a guy who thinks right outside the square. Well, uh, before I go to my next interview, uh, I'd just like to uh, point out that we have a Switzer TV investing show on Mondays nights. You can go to YouTube to uh, find that show. If you just put in Switzer Financial TV, it'll come up. Um, and, you know, we've got about 15,000 subscribers now. Last week's show, I think, brought in about something like 20,000. So it's a growing um, TV program. We get some of the best stock pickers in the country coming on, giving their best ideas. And many of their ideas have translated into much higher stock prices. So if you're interested in the stock market, give it a go. Uh, just go to YouTube, put in Switzer Financial, and it'll bob up and you'll see the show. You can become a subscriber and we'll send you an alert um, when the show's um, out there ready to see, which is on Monday nights around 7 o'clock. All right. And also, if you want to... Um, uh, get more information about what we do in terms of stock picking, have a look at the Switzer Report. There's a 21-day free trial. Now I'm trying something really unusual. I'm going to interview myself. Um, a lot of people always ask me, you know, like, you know, what's your background? How did you end up in the media and all that sort of stuff? So um, I thought, well, why not? Um, we had a dropout. I didn't want to pressure anybody else. So I thought, well, yeah, let's see if I can interview myself. Let's kick off with introduction with, you might know Peter Switzer from the media. A lot of people presume he is a finance guy, a money man guy. But in actual fact, there are many other um, parts to the, the Peter Switzer story. So let me start off with, with this question, Peter. Where did Peter Switzer come from? Oh, that's a good start. If I was interviewing myself, that's exactly what I would do, ask that question. Um, okay, so I, um, I came from the eastern suburbs of uh, Sydney, uh, went to um, St Anne's Bondo Beach as a youngster, uh, Wayler College, studied at the University of New South Wales, um, uh, did a Master of Commerce, so I have a Bachelor of Commerce and a Master of Commerce, 
taught for a while at Waverley College, uh, where I was swimming captain. So I was also a swimming coach there. Then I went to Sydney Grammar School. And at that time, I started doing part-time tutoring at New South in the economics department. Actually, I was appointed by John Hewson um, to that uh, part-time role. And eventually, they offered me a chance to do a PhD. And so I, I left grammar after coaching the second 15 rugby side for a, a couple of years and didn't do too badly considering grammar only had three teams in the, in the, uh, the first, while most other sides like Joey's and Shaw and whatever had 12 or 13 teams. So, um, yeah, so out, off I went to university to do my PhD. And along the way, um, I got the idea that uh, the Sydney Morning Herald was doing an education supplement for the HSC. And the Daily Telegraph didn't have a, a rival product. So I, I actually rang up the editor of the Telegraph, um, asked the uh, operator if I could speak to the editor of the newspaper. Inexplicably, she put me straight through and inexplicably, he picked up. And so I was able to say who I was, told him I taught at the University of South Wales, told him about Sydney Morning Herald's HSC education supplement, and I told him I could put together some of the best teachers in the, in the state to do a rival publication. He said, come on in, let's talk. So luckiest phone call of all time, luckiest, you know, probably the best telephone operator of all time, all created an opportunity for me to go and do the pitch and the editor um, liked the idea of it. A guy called Les Hoffman. Uh, Les has been very important for um, changing my, my life and um, I hope he's still out there alive and he hears this. I appreciate what he did for me. Anyway, um, ended up at, um, uh, doing the education supplement for a couple of years. Um, then was offered a column to write on Wednesdays, um, up, up against Ross Kittens on Wednesdays in the City Morning Herald. And then um, David White, who was the Triple M news director for the whole country and used to read the news with Doug Mulray on Triple M, used to read my stuff. And he, he um, was doing a documentary in uh, middle of 87, and the documentary was called Are We Living on Borrowed Time? And he was sort of proposing the idea that maybe the stock market was really a bit frothy and could go for a big fall and big slide. And he said to me, would you be willing to give me a hand to make this documentary? And I said, sure, I'd love to. And um, went and met him. We got along really well. Uh, he interviewed a whole lot of really smart people, but he wasn't an economist and he just wanted someone to give him a hand. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so what happened was um, in the middle of making a documentary, the stock market crashed, a massive crash in October of 87. And uh, as a consequence of that, David asked me to come on to the Triple M breakfast program with uh, the legendary Doug Mulray, who was rating well over 20% of the, the Sydney radio market. And uh, I went on there and just explained to people what was going on. And we, we seemed to do pretty well on radio and, and David White really loved the stuff that we were doing. Uh, I then went to work with Stuart Cranny in, in the nine to 12 slot, once again, explaining, because this was a very scary crash. A lot of people wanted, wanted to know what was the likelihood of a recession, what was going to go wrong and right and whatever. So it was a great chance for me to, you know, uh, wax lyrical about, you know, economics and how you could, you could sort of make it understandable to a normal person. Anyway, so David White said to me, look, Triple M, we're interested in offering you a contract. Would you be interested in working in the mornings and afternoons uh, on Triple M? I said, yeah, that'd be great. Anyway, so it took some time and they didn't, the contract, I kept going to the letterbox every day to see the offer, but the offer wasn't there. There was no internet in those days or email, so you went to the letterbox hoping to see good news. And so at the same time, what happened was um, John Laws uh, 
was leaving 2GB, which was owned by the Fairfax Group, and he was going to 2UE, and uh, 2UE didn't have a, a link to a newspaper as such. And so I thought, well, if, you know, Ross Kittens is probably going to be working on the 2GB group because Fairfax and Ross worked for Fairfax was going to be there. Maybe Laws are interested in having a, a, a rival economist to help him out whenever there were stories. So I contacted his producer, who was a, a famous news writer called John Bailey, uh, rang him up and said, look, I'd like to um, work with John if, you, if he'd like an economist to work with him, given the fact he probably can't work with Ross anymore. And so John Bailey said, come out and meet um, John. So I went out there and I was, I was just wearing, I went straight from university, so I wasn't wearing a suit. I was wearing jeans and an open-neck shirt. And I walked in, I met John Laws, and I remember Laws looking at me and said, well, you don't look like an economist, you'll do me. And so we got along famously. Um, and I uh, said, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to work with you. So within about a week, there was a big story. Um, the Transport Minister for the New South Wales Government a guy by the name of Bruce Baird had raised the toll on the Sydney Harbour Bridge from a dollar to two dollars. The whole world was going mad and crazy because you know, the Griner government had promised that the toll on the bridge would never rise faster than the inflation rate. So John the Laws contacted me and said, Peter, what's the um, inflation rate and what should the toll actually be based on the inflation rate? So I go on for the first time with John Laws and I remember him saying, now I'd like to introduce you to my very, very good friend, Peter Switzer. And uh, Peter, you've, you've heard about the Transport Minister. Uh, tell us about what the toll should be given the inflation rate. So I gave him some figures and I said, well, based on that, John, the, the toll should really be about $1.23. And he said, right, $1.23. This is a man who would know Peter Switzer, but the ministers raised it to $2. So that was basically the story. Uh, I wisely taped it on a cassette because we used to use cassettes in those days. So there I was working with the number one guy in Sydney radio at the time, John Laws. I quickly sent it off to David White at Triple M. David White then took it into the management at Triple M and within a day they offered me a contract and I was working at Triple M. I, I must admit I was offered a contract to you as well, but uh, given the fact that I, I had a young family, I was still working at university, you know, 2UE wanted me to work in the mornings and the afternoons, really long shifts and stuff like that. It just didn't suit me. So it was a great chance to work with the number one breakfast show in, in Sydney with Doug Mulleray. Also, that meant that I was working with the number one uh, show in Melbourne. There was a famous D-generation. It was called Kevin Hillier in the D-generation. Um, I was supposed to work in Brisbane, but Brisbane never liked the idea of a Sydney smart aleck commenting on Brisbane radio every morning. And uh, and also Brisbane actually had a bit of a problem with Triple M because uh, the boss of Triple M and Grace got rid of some of the, the people who were at Triple M. Triple M took over a local radio station, got rid of some people, started to try to network other things into Brisbane. And so the, the rival Brisbane station, which was owned by the Osteria Group or the equivalent Osteria Group at the time, they actually just said, ah, oh, look, Triple M is now being programmed from Sydney. And so the consequence of this promotion of Triple M was taking over a Brisbane radio station. That station, Triple M station, went from like a, a 30% rating down to something like 15. And the other station that was a 15 became a 30 all in one go. So that's why I wasn't in Brisbane. But still, it was, I was ensconced in two great uh, radio stations with big audiences. So it was a great, great chance to be exposed to lots and lots of people. As a consequence of that, I was invited on um, to work with uh, Clive Robertson on Channel 7 with his uh, uh, very popular Newsworld program. And that was, um, um, you know, a top rating show. Uh, Clive Robertson was 
introducing a very unusual approach to news where he'd actually read a news item and then make some kind of smart, funny or obscene comment. <laughs> Usually smart and funny. It wasn't really obscene, but it was actually very provocative. And people started to tune in to this guy who was just actually commenting on the news. And, and it was a very, very successful program. And uh, so successful that um, Kerry Packer, who was running Channel 9, called um, Graham Kennedy out of um, a retirement to actually read news against Clive Robertson. Um, and uh, in actual fact, um, Kennedy never read the news. Um, guys like Ken Sutcliffe and John... Um, what is his name, uh, John Mangos, they had to read the news while Graham Kennedy poked fun at them and the news in front of a live audience. So it was really uh, a really competitive um, environment. Eventually, I think Kennedy might have told Kerry Packer enough was enough. So Packer actually offered um, 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 Clive Robertson an enormous amount of money to switch from seven to nine. And so I was um, on the way to work on the new News World program on Channel 9 in fact, the night I was supposed to be on, um, Clive Robertson read a news item that involved uh, Kerry Packer's daughter who'd fallen off a horse and he made some smart like remark. And so Clive lost his show. Kerry, Kerry just pulled the show. So that was a, a very interesting experience, um, a very short-lived um, um, experience on Channel 9 for both uh, Clive Robertson and myself. But the, the radio thing went on. I eventually went and worked with uh, uh, Mike Carlton when he came home from London on Mix 106.5, uh, it was called in those days. Of course, that nowadays is KISS FM. Um, and so at the same time, I, you know, I had columns with the, the, the Sun Herald for a long time, um, even had the Financial Review sponsoring my, my um, spot on um, Triple M for a couple of years. And eventually I migrated to the Australian where I not only wrote their economics column on Fridays, but also uh, was their small business editor on Mondays. And so... In many ways, I, I got to hang out with a whole lot of really smart people. Now, I know, Pete, I haven't given you a chance to ask another question because that's been the longest answer of all time, but I think I have pretty well explained where the Peter Switzers come from. Okay, I've got another question for you, Peter. What was it like to work with someone like Doug Mulray? Well, Doug was a very funny guy. Um, in fact, I was only thinking about him this week when I came across a Robin Williams um, video of him doing stand-up where he does a, an impersonation of um, Elmer Fudd singing that Springsteen song, Fire. One of the funniest things you'll ever see, you know, that, that voice of Elmer Fudd and that provocative song, Fire. Well, in actual fact, um, one day when Doug was doing a show, Robin Williams actually came into the studio and I was there at the time. I was doing my editorial in the in the B studio, and Williams and, and Doug were in the A studio. And that, that half hour when Robin Williams was there, I don't think Doug played an ad. I don't think he played the song. He completely frigged with the format. But it was just unbelievable radio with, you know, two of the funniest guys around, you know, basically dueling on jokes. And uh, one of the things they played at the time was that, Robin Williams impersonation of Elman Fudd playing fire. And that was, that was the kind of thing that Mulray was able to achieve. And I think in many ways, even though a lot of people thought he was a down-to-earth, normal kind of guy, which was, the, in a sense, what he portrayed on radio, but it was very, very funny. Um, he was very professional. Um, 
you know, one of the things I learned, one of his early uh, sidekicks was uh, Andrew Denton. So when I worked with Doug, Andrew Denton was Doug's sidekick. I remember saying to them one day, I said, how do you guys actually, you know, consistently remain funny over a three-hour time slot? And I remember um, Doug saying to us, um, we rehearse our ad-libs, which I think is a very, very important piece of um, um guidance and education for anyone who works in the media or does speeches and things like that. Rehearse your ad-libs and uh, they, it really makes you look as though you're very comfortable to churn out fantastic stuff even without, you know, well, even though it looks as though you've got no planning, there's a lot of planning behind it. So why did I leave academia? Well, I think the story is pretty well obvious, Peter. I left academia because um, the other stuff was more interesting. I, I love teaching. And basically what I'm doing in the media nowadays is teach. You know, I've just increased the size of the audience. I went from classrooms at Waverley and Grammar, classrooms of like 20 to 30, to lecture halls at uh, New South of probably even 1,000. And then eventually radio audiences that are in the hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and television audiences are the same. So, and, and, and basically um, th that's what I'm doing in the media. I know I'm portrayed as a journalist and I'm, I've acted as a journalist. I write stories and I report, but I am more a commentator. And I think I'm more an educator slash uh, commentator. So what's, what's your business story, Peter? Well, all that stuff I did at university, before I even got into the media, I, I actually had a, um, an economics coaching business. Um, when I taught, taught at Grammar, a lot of the, the teachers there did teaching after school, and they were actually, you know, um, getting paid for it. And I thought, well, if we're going to do this, a lot of people were, were taking cash in those days. I thought, well, why don't I make this into a business? And if I've got a business and I'm declaring the income and I get tax deduction for my phone, the car I might lease and all that sort of stuff, I actually decided to embrace and create a business called Switzer Coaching, which actually became the, the business I used when I took to the media at first before we incorporated. Um, and, you know, in that time I, I taught some quite remarkable people like uh, Anthony Eisen, the founder of Afterpay, who was one of my economics coaching students, uh, and there are a lot more as well. Um, and so uh, that was the first part of my business story. Um, my wife and I, you know, Maureen, uh, we, we created that. Maureen went on to university and top university in law. Uh, we eventually got offered a contract to do um, the editing of Australian Small Business Magazine. We did that as a business, so we added that onto our, our coaching business. I think we were probably still doing some coaching as well. P people I'd taught school at university were coming back to me. We started adding this on, then the media was added on, so we were progressively adding more parts to our business. And then eventually, uh, after we left Australian Small Business, we started doing our own media. We started publishing our own magazines. We had a joint venture with um, a guy called Michael Schulberger, who's a quite famous Melburnian. Uh, we had a, a magazine there called Business Essentials. Um, uh, we did a lot of uh, really interesting things. We then started doing publications for um, the Australian Chartered uh, Institute of Australia. Uh, we did other magazines for other publications. Um, we started getting contracts with big organisations like Optus to help them communicate with um, small business groups. And so the business just grew and grew. And along the way, we kept being asked, whether we could do financial planning and I was giving a whole lot of other people referrals and in the end I thought, well, you know, I, I might like guys like Paul Clitheroe but when I send people off to his business, I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure Paul's not actually doing the, the financial planning. So 
we decided to create our own financial planning business. And we did that uh, based on rebating commissions because there's a lot of terrible commission under the table stuff going on those days or percentage fees. And we decided to charge flat dollar fees. And so we started our financial planning business and that's progressively grown over time. And so we've become a multifaceted organisation. We now make television programs. We have the Switzer Report, which is the stock picking um, uh, investment newsletter that we do. We have the Switzer Daily, which is effectively like a, a, a website newspaper every day. So there's a whole lot, and of course, the podcast, which you now listen to, it becomes a, a, a business where we employ well over 20 people. We have offices in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and uh, We've got some really, really interesting things coming up. Um, I'm, I'm running close to our time, but there's a question I always wanted to ask you, Peter. Why do you always seem optimistic compared to your media rivals? I think one of the answer to that one, Peter, is that I'm basically an educator and I'm an economist uh, as well. And while a lot of my media rivals are reacting to stories that are in the media, a lot of the stories in the media are often focused on the negative. And so when a negative story comes along, I, I try to evaluate how negative we should be, and whether the positives actually outweigh the negatives. And over time, I've realised, for example, the stock market will, even though it's so scary when it crashes, like it did in 2008 um, and it did, did in 2020, in actual fact, the stock market goes up about seven to eight years out of 10. And it tends to rise about 10% per annum over a 10-year period. Of course, you have down 20% and up. 22 and all that sort of stuff. But so the long term, the stock market is a positive uh, vehicle for making money. You know, we grow more times than we go into recession. When you start, when you start looking at um, most of the things out there, there's a much greater swing to optimism than there is to pessimism. And so I, I try to weigh it up. And sometimes I do go negative. You know, I was I was cautious about the coronavirus, but uh, who kept telling us, no, there's not nothing to worry about until they changed their mind in late February. Um, uh, once the, the, the GFC started, I was very negative. I was getting stuck into the Reserve Bank in February of 2008 because they were raising interest rates in 2008. But the majority of time, I will be seen as optimistic because optimism is the likely outcome for most of the time when I'm writing. So, you know, I've got to say, uh, in the early, well, I'd say 2012 to 2015, 16, I was ripping you the Reserve Bank. They were raising interest rates and they should have been cutting. So it's not always the case I'm optimistic, but the majority of the reason I'm optimistic is because it makes good sense and you'll make more money out of being optimistic, but you still do have to invest wisely as an optimist as well. Um, Significant milestones in your life, Peter. I love the fact that we now have a listed product on the stock market. I've talked about stock market my whole life, and now we have the Switz, Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, um, which is purely a, a fund designed to harvest the dividends from great performing companies. And I love the fact that the ASX decided to call it Switz, which is my nickname, SWTZ. We've also got a, 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 a fund a bond fund called the Switzer Higher Yield Fund, which is quite a recent thing, which is all uh, linked to finding the best possible returns you can get from very, very safe bonds. And we do that with Chris Joy's Coolabar Capital. That's another thing that people can get on the stock exchange and get through your brokers. Finally, Peter, what lies ahead? As you can see, I could, you know, I could talk to you all day, but we are running out of time. Well, I had, 2021 is going to be a great year. 2020 was uh, tricky. But we've, we've created opportunities. 
There's going to be some very big news we'll be announcing in a couple of weeks' time about uh, a great contract that we've secured. And we've also learned that we can do our live events online as well, and they've become really popular. Just like a lot of businesses, like restaurant businesses are doing catering and 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 all that sort of stuff, which I never did before. We're doing stuff that's never been done before. And I think 2021, 2022 is going to be a great year for the economy. And businesses like ours have learned from the coronavirus year of 2020. And we will do really well. Uh, thanks very much, Peter, for interviewing. And thanks very much, Peter, for joining us on the show. Well, that was Peter Switzer on the Peter Switzer Learning from Legends show. I think I might go away with it. I'm not sure. I'll get your reaction to it. I might do a part two one of these days, but we are out of time. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget, if you're interested in investing in the market, have a look at the switzerreport.com.au website. There's a 21 three-day trial for people who might be interested in the Switzer Report. Mm -hmm.